Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Follow our socials and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. See you all there. And now, here's this week's episode. Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital streaming sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844-4-ALL-MUSIC. That's right. It's 844 844- for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. Hey guys, I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends and repeat guest on And The Writer is Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys, He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans, including Christopher Cross, The Go-Go's, Run the Jewels, John Belly and John Ryan, Mozilla, Julian Bonetta's Family Affair, Cara Diaguardi, Zara House, Future Cut, Sam Waters, Ruth Ann, Brian Morgan, and various other amazing songwriters. In fact, they have publishing deals with Keto, Robopop, Sofia Valdez, Charlie Brand, Tilly, and more. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work. Because of him, we have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have Songwriters added to the Album of the Year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker, and go check them out now. BMI is the champion of the creator, supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters, shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels, from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers. Just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com.
Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's songwriter and rock and roll Hall of Famer has written more evergreens than we'll ever be able to get to in one interview. Man, a brilliant 40-year career in music, film, and television will do that. He worked on songs like do do rum rum run do do rum run and and then he kissed me and uh, be my be my be my little baby and 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 going to chapel and 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 the leader of the pack and I'm a believer and moving on up and more so many so many we're not even going to get to them all but I mean we could be here all day because he even helped discover fellow legend Neil Diamond which reminds me having already been the subject of a Broadway musical, he's about to have more songs than another musical, the Neil Diamond musical that opens this fall. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, our guest is still creating at warp speed. And the writer is Jeff Barry. Yay! <laughs> now that's an intro. Yeah, man. How you doing, Ross? Pleasure to, I'm good. Pleasure to be doing this with you, by the way. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. Uh, you know, it's it's always exciting. I, I was saying before we even started this that I grew up listening to Brill Building songs and New York, the New York influence on pop music. And, and, and to me, this was the music that, that I was raised on. And then, you know, what's fascinating about it is that it, it's really you and your peers that defined what we think of as the pop music industry. It's really the, the to me, that is the difference between, you know, previous to that, you have jazz and all the classical, and there's some, you know, there's popular music and there's traditional pop music. But what you guys did was create the song that we still now think of as pop music. So, pop welcome. meaning popular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, how does, so, you know, uh, it, you were born in 1938 and you, uh, you still have the energy of a 20-year-old, so you're doing something right, but, you know, Tell me about your childhood. I mean, the music that was going on in Brooklyn, New York in 1938 is not the music you started writing by the time you were 24. So tell me about your childhood. What, what did your parents do? Well, my, uh, my father was an insurance salesman, and he was quite successful at it, actually. He was blind, and he, so he did everything on the phone. And uh, quite, quite good at it. We actually had a little semi-detached brick home in uh, Brooklyn and he had a mini limo and Howard, a chauffeur and uh, my mom had a car and my sister was uh, mentally handicapped she's uh, six years older than I am and uh, still kicking and um, so I grew up in a in, in a I, 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 I was I stayed out of the way, you know. My mom had it kind of rough, and uh, dealing with you, all of that. Yeah. So I, I stayed in the background and uh, made made stuff up, you know. What kind of music do you listen to in a household like that, where it seems really hectic? I imagine that 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 household where you have a, somebody on the phone the whole time, and what your sister was going through. That my envision is that it was a very 
loud, loud household. No. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Not at all, actually. I was, don't remember any real noise. There was a piano. Mm-hmm. My father would play the St. Louis blues, which he taught mm-hmm. me. And it really wasn't much music that, that, that I, no one ever asked me that. Uh, let me think a second here. I, I don't think there was outside music. I mean, I do remember hearing old songs. Just this morning, by the way, I remembered a song that was written in 09. <laughs> called mm. Pony Boy, Pony Boy, Pony Boy, will not you be my pony boy? And I just remembered that one this morning. But I think it was because I was attracted to the pony aspect of it. <laughs> because back then I would listen to... Uh, the radio on the Formica top table in the kitchen, listen to the Lone Ranger and uh, all those good cowboy uh, radio shows and, and, and uh, the, to the detective shows and uh, my imagination. I mean, something about radio, which is, and podcasts, dramatic podcasts, is really modern radio. I want to do one of those so bad. I, I grew up on radio. It would be such fun to do the old... Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, yeah. To do the sound effects and... Yeah, yeah. Ta- tap dancing. <laughs> tap <Yeah>. dancing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so it, it was just fun listening to the radio and um, using my imagination and making shit up, you know, in my head. It's weird. The, the music industry that we know is really interesting because before World War II, all the music that was played on the radio primarily was live because the musicians would actually record and actually perform live. So when you'd hear people on radio, it was an actual performance. All in one room. Yeah, and then during... During World War II, a lot of artists went overseas. It was harder to get people to... Um, to the actual stations and whatnot, and people started playing records over the air to fill up space. And that's why we think of, why we call radio performances performances is because they used to be performances. But after, when a lot of the artists had to go away, the radio stations realized, oh, that we can just keep playing this vinyl over... The radio waves. And so it really is, you know, when I was saying before, your generation really did end up launching into what we think of as pop music. It's because previous to that, you actually had to perform live on radio. And then once, you know, as you're growing up, you start hearing actual music on that was intentionally recorded to on be the played, radio. To be played on the radio, yeah. To be played on the radio. Um, when, you know, what kind of music in New York 
yes, they had radio shows where you actually had what you were saying. You know, you'd have sound effects and you'd have drama and you'd have the fugitive. You'd have these series that would go on forever and you'd always try to figure out who the one armed man is or whatever. And they would tell you all these stories, you know, the Lone Ranger and whatnot. Do you remember listening to music on the radio? No, I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. I, um, I, it wasn't, I really didn't, I think I, I think I was in high school, teenager, before I really started to hear music, and it was doo wop, you know. I mean, what, oh, see, my parents got divorced when I was seven, and we went from kind of a nice life to uh, my mother, in her infinite wisdom, didn't take any alimony or anything. So my sister and I and my mom, we all lived in the attic in my uncle's home in Plainfield, New Jersey. Wow. Where, where once again I really wasn't paid much attention to. So, um, see, my my take on um, what what I have learned is that Alan Freed, the disc jockey, said the words "rock and roll" on the radio in 1955 for the first time. The first time anyone said those words on the radio. So for me, that's like the cornerstone. And before the 50s. Young people were not a market. They had no money. It was in the 50s. Eisenhower was president. Things got a little better economically in this country. And the, the kids had an allowance. And they literally had a buck. So going into the 50s, it was the breakable 78s and the big bands and Bobby Soxers. Young people had to be satisfied with Frank Sinatra and all that. And coming out of the 50s, it was the 45, the birth of the 45. And um, Presley taking the rhythms of the South and putting it to songs from Lieber and Stoller and other people in, in New York. Um, the, the, the drums, guitar became the instruments, the lead instruments, you know, drums, bass, keyboard, piano, and that. Um, and that, that's, that's my transitional period, coming out of the 50s, where it all happened. I mean, I wrote my, I wrote my first big hit, which was called, a song called Tell Laura I Love Her. Came out in 1960. But I, I wrote basic, the basic song in 58. And yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, you're just a kid at that point. I mean, you're 20 years old. Like, did, yeah. did you... Were you playing any instruments? You know, were, oh, no. it's one thing to be in a you know in an attic and going to high school in 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 New Jersey is one thing, but there's something is in the air at that time. Obviously, rock and roll is that, but there's something in the air where a bunch of people who are about your age all throughout the New York greater New York area are all choosing at the exact same time. Hey, we're gonna write songs. Well, I was who, back in Brooklyn at that point. Okay, so who 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 says to you, "Hey, you should write songs"? Nobody. I just so did it. Where does it come from? I wrote my first song when I was eight years old. <laughs> my mother was impressed, and she wrote it down, and I remember the melody. What is it? And it was all again about cowboys. What's the song? Is that? You want me to sing it? Yeah, hell yeah. I got a gun and I got a saddle and I got a pony. It's very clever, by the way. I, I rhymed you, you, and you. Perfect. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, what did I know? 
<laughs> I got a gun and I got a saddle and I got a pony too. I wish I had a sweetheart, a sweetheart like you. Oh, I got a gun and I got a saddle and I got a pony too. I even got a sweetheart and that sweetheart's you. If you got a gun and you got a saddle and you got a pony too, you ought to get a sweetheart. I'm telling you. That's it. And, and you perform that enough in the house where your mom is actually like, hey, I'm going to write that down. And you still remember it. So you didn't just perform it once. Did you have to perform that for your family? And, like, family I doubt it. Like, I really doubt it. I really doubt it. But I, was, it I was eight years old when I... Yeah, well, that's, when you, that's when you force a kid to sing in front of a, a bunch of family members. Oh, no, no. No, never. When did you, when did you actually start... Uh, Writing where you were like, I could, I could actually sing this to people outside of the house. That that was back in Brooklyn, probably uh, late high school with doo-wop. I mean, doo-wop was uh, poor kids where we didn't have any instruments. And, um, you know, we had a lead. We had three people in the background, which was the chord. And a guy at the bottom, bo bo ba doo 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 ba ba doo de ba and finger snaps, hand claps was percussion. And that's really all we needed. We had all the parts of a, a record. So that was the first time I, I really started writing, making up songs. You know? um, when you have, you started writing, or I guess you wrote Tell Laura I Love Her after you graduated high school. At your high school and around that are other, you know, Fellow no. songwriter <laughs> Hall of Famers, right? I mean, not at it, my time. No, I mean, Streisand went to Erasmus Hall, and Neil Diamond actually went there, and I suppose others, but not in my, not in the years I was there. They were they were a little after you. Yes. So when "Tell Laura I Love Her," you finish that song. How do you get a song that you then write in 1958? It's one thing when you're writing songs in high school. It's another thing to get a record label to hear it, and that time, an A and R person was actually an artist and repertoire representative. Explain how you got "Tell Laura I Love Her" from your head to an artist. Well, um, actually, at that time, I wanted to be an entertainer. A singer. Mm-hmm. Danny Kaye, I thought, was cool. He was just fun, and he sang, and he danced, and it just seemed like a fun thing to, excuse me, a fun thing to do. And uh, a friend of one of my cousins um, actually knew someone in the record industry who was a music publisher by the name of Arnold Shaw. And um, as a favor to this friend, he said, sure, I'll listen to the kid, and if he can sing, I will introduce him to some record types. So yeah. the only thing I could sing were songs I wrote with the two chords I knew at the time. And uh, because he was a music publisher, he was kind of more interested in the songs than the singer. He, you know, I'm writing a book, you know, and they keep talking about let's do a show, let's do a movie. I almost had a, like a mini series on me, but if it ever comes to a scene, it'll be the he says to me, ah, kid, yeah, you sing just fine, but what are those songs you're playing? <laughs> anyway, but he did say something like that, and my response was probably, I don't know, I made him up. We're talking about me as a singer here, 
But anyway, he, he, I guess he saw something there. And um, he did, in fact, introduce me to <clears throat> Hugo and Luigi at RCA, who were staff producers. They had an office and their desks were facing each other. And, um, and I did make some terrible, terrible records you know, because they were based on very corny songs. But um, they were recording Ray Peterson and they called my publisher, Ronald Shaw, and, and I was the kid. I was the kid all through the 60s for some reason. Does the kid have any songs that might be good for Ray Peterson? And I had just finished Tell Laura I Love Her. Interestingly enough, because I was always interested in cowboys and rodeos and that stuff and knew very little about uh, anything else, certainly nothing about romance, I still don't. <clears throat> Excuse me, wow, what is going on here? <clears throat> I, I might be the first person to actually have a heart attack right in front. Um, oh my God. Yeah, Please, hey, uh, well, that would be history. Keep it together. <clears throat> keep it together. And uh, uh, where was I? Oh, so when, uh, are you familiar with Tell Laura I Love Her? It's about a kid who wants to get some money for his love and enters his car in a stock car race and gets killed. Oh, that wow. was like maybe the first death song. But originally I wrote it. The song goes, uh, he saw a sign for a stock car race, a thousand dollar prize it read. Uh, he couldn't get Laura on the phone, so to her mommy, not, he said, tell Laura I love her. And he goes and he enters and he dies. But originally it was, he saw a sign for a rodeo, a thousand dollar prize it read. And, and I sang the song, the kid gets gored to death by a Brahma bull in the original. And my publisher said, gored to death by a Brahma bull? Who can relate to that? You know, on that first songwriting lesson, oh yeah, they got to relate to it. So we'll kill them in a car, everybody can relate to that. So anyway, I had made a, a, a simple demo. Uh, Hugo and Luigi loved it. They recorded it with Ray Peterson, and that was my first big hit. And um, I, there were rumors. So I heard something about, in England, they didn't want to play it. And I never could figure out what the, the fuss was about, but they did, of course, play it. And then I realized years and years later, in 1960, when the record came out, the opening line is, Laura and Tommy were lovers. And that was like pretty risque. Yeah. Kids doing it, and they weren't married. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty edgy, by, <laughs> edgy back then. When the song starts to work, um, were you kind of jealous because you wanted to be an entertainer, or were you excited because, you know, here's a song that's working? I mean, well, honestly, um, when he offered me this, he offered me my first songwriting gig, right, for seventy-five bucks a week, and my mm. my financial goal at the time was ten thousand dollars a year or two hundred dollars a week. That was right. that was big time. That would be big time. My, yeah. my cousin Stuart, the chemist who owned a home in New Jersey, um, uh, was rumored in the family to be earning $15,000 a year. Mm. I think I have to do that hourly now to keep <laughs> the gates open. Anyway, um, and uh, so I, I, it was quite exciting, though, having a hit, you know, as a writer. And I, I, there were other records I got at the time and met. You know, Beverly Ross, for instance, I wrote some things. She wrote Lollipop. Right. Yeah. 
And um, I actually had a convertible, old 54 Caddy convertible, with black with red leather seats. What did your mom think of all of it? Well, okay, in my family, it was like, oh, poor Ruth. You know, what's going to happen to Ruth and Mitzi now that uh, Jeff's going to be a bum? I quit college. I was studying uh, industrial design. And uh, so he's going to be a bum. What's going to happen to them? So what happened to her was I bought her a home on Long Island and everything worked out just fine. Amazing. I'm sure she was appreciative. Um, You meet Ellie, who you end up marrying and... uh, Obviously, you work end up working with Phil Spector, and you go on this run of you know some of the biggest songs in history. Um, you know, it's one thing to have a hit. A lot of people have had hits. It's another thing to have these kinds of hits. What was the? Why did the chemistry work so well with Ellie and Phil? What was it in that? You know, what was it, what was the, what is the magic, looking back on it now, if you tried to cast the three of you, why did the three of you guys create such incredible, such an incredible catalog in such a short amount of time? Um, I, I wish there was a real answer to that, because it would probably probably be applicable but if there was an answer people would probably be able to use that answer yeah of to, course to 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 uh that's it, what it, i'm it, asking yeah, i want to know <laughs> yeah you know I, I, by the way you're asking some really good questions here um, <laughs> there 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 I, it's 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 what happens you know i i, I it's, it's it's you know I had hits before and after that time, and Phil had hits before and after that time, and we we just clicked, and uh, it, it, it turned out that you know I worked with Phil after um, until I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, oh boy, he was he was a, he, he was a piece of work, but. Um, the Expe- I mean, uh, not to go off topic, and obviously he's legendary in all the piece of work that he is and was. You know, uh, I, it's impossible to ask. Did you? Could you see the foresight of the craziness in that time? But uh, what at that time did? How soon did you realize this guy's nuts? Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital streaming sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844-4-ALL-MUSIC. That's right. It's 844 844- for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. Hey guys, 
I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends, and repeat guest on And The Writer is, Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys. He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans, including Christopher Cross, The Go-Go's, Run the Jewels, John Belly and John Ryan, Mozella, Julian Bonetta's Family Affair, Cara Diaguardi, Zara House, Future Cut, Sam Waters, Ruth Ann, Brian Morgan, and various other amazing songwriters. In fact, they have publishing deals with Keto, Robopop, Sofia Valdez, Charlie Brand, Tilly, and more. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work. Because of him, we have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have songwriters added to the album of the year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker, and go check them out now. BMI is the champion of the creator. Supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters, shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels, from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers. Just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com. Um, well, the first, if the nuts part came after um, uh, realizing he was toys with people and was rude. Mm-hmm. and um, would take advantage of people, like to dominate, play head games. And, um, and then the nuts part was much later, much later. Because, um, I mean, I, I just wouldn't put up with any of that stuff, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't pull guns around me. He did do, you know, crazy social things like we'd, we'd go. He always had a bodyguard. He think he wanted to think he needed a bodyguard. Right. And uh, <clears throat> we would go out for lunch with Big Red, his bodyguard, and he would put Red at a table over there, and he would stare at somebody at another table, just like making faces. And, and finally, the guy would say, "What's your problem?" You know, and he would go. Bah, 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 bah. And the guy, eventually, the guy was saying, you want to step outside? And he said, you want to fight? And the guy would go, yeah. And, he, and then Phil would point to Big Red and say, okay, fight him. And, and all his bodyguards hated it. I mean. And, uh, you know, he, he would just do things like that. And he would come to New York, he had an office in New York. And uh, Ellie and I would go over there to write. And uh, I would, you know, would tell his assistant, you know, you know, you know, call up to the apartment, tell Phil we're here. And he would keep us waiting, and he would keep us waiting each time. And I told him, finally, about third or fourth time, I said, look, tell Phil five minutes, and if, he, and if we don't go up, I'm, I'm, we're out of here. Yeah. So naturally, I mean, he's not going to. So we left, and yeah. never went back. And 
So he had to come to our place to write. We wrote uh, River Deep Mountain High at our party. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Like, it's not so, so different than now as far as the dynamics in writing teams and people who, I mean, it's Phil Spector is a different level of uh, his, his, what his dynamic is. But the idea that you guys could have written that, that hit anywhere. But you go through this, that drama that you have internally probably created really good music. Um, but, I, you know, you're in this relationship with Ellie. Is it hard? Was it fun to write with your girlfriend, fiance, spouse during all that? Was it, is it, is that a, was that healthy for you guys? Sometimes it's really healthy and sometimes it's really not healthy. Well, basically, it was our relationship. It was, yeah. it was more writing partners than husband and wife or uh-huh. uh, you know, romantic partners. It was, it was 24-7. It was crazy, Russ. I mean, How much were you writing in that time? Are you writing four songs a we day? We were writing or? with Phil. We had Redbird Records. Right, I wrote or and or produced everything on that label, and working with Phil and um, Neil Diamond, who Lee Stola didn't quite get, and so I took him over to my best friend Bert Burns at Bang Records. So literally, there was very little time for anything else. Mm-hmm. It's it's a long story. I won't get into it, but in in that time. Um, I was in the studio so much, or not at home, and the New York City Police Department, NYPD was looking for me, seriously. They couldn't, find, they couldn't find me for 10 days. Wait, why were they looking for you? Um, well, an actor was killed, and witnesses said that he wounded his assailant, okay, and that was on a Thursday. Uh, and that Thursday night, I was playing basketball with the Tokens. Lion sleeps tonight. And um, the person I was guarding, the ball was coming to him, and I reached around and broke this knuckle right here. Next day, I went in the office. My, my assistant said, purple and green is not good. Went, went to the hospital, bandaged it up. And uh, 10 days later, um, early in the morning, my doorbell rings, and we were in we were in the building in New York. It's called Mayfair Towers. They just opened. It's right next to the Dakota, on Seventy Second Street. We had the penthouse overlooking the East River. Very cool. And somebody's at the door. You can't get you can't get past the you know the guys at the front, right? Two detectives, badges. Come on downtown. They took me downtown. Anyway, what they had what they had checked was hospitals so there was this guy with a broken finger and they couldn't find him for 10 days and they started to do investigations they dug a little deeper and they had a big you want to hear the whole story yeah keep going okay so they take me to they take me downtown you know wherever the precinct was and to the back room and it's a big table and their names were blaney and blavener and i have a terrible memory Ross, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
And they had a guy, you know, taking notes on a steno pad. This was before anything digital. And uh, they had this folder. And the guy, here's how he spoke to me, the one who was doing most of the interrogating. I don't know if it was Bellini or Blavener. But he said, so, Jeff, uh, what, uh, what happened to your hand? I said, well, I was playing basketball, and I broke the little finger. And uh, he said, oh. And he has his folder, and it's open, and he has his paper, and he said, why did you tell the hospital it was baseball? I said, I didn't tell him it was baseball. It's the middle of winter. Who plays baseball? I said, it must be the name of the injury, baseball finger. Maybe it happens you know, to baseball players. And he says, okay, Jeff. Uh, anyway, he says, why did you go to that hospital, Jeff? You had to pass two hospitals. You live on 72nd Street. Why did you go to a hospital in the 30s? I said, well, because my assistant the next morning, and that's the closest hospital. Oh, okay, Jeff. So you're a songwriter, huh, Jeff? I said, yeah, I wrote that on the hospital thing, you know, occupation. Mm -hmm. Composer, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm a composer, yeah, I'm a songwriter. Are you in a ASCAP or BMI, Jeff? I said, well, yeah, I'm in BMI. And they said, no, you're not. We called them. They never heard of you. Now, at the time, <laughs> at the time, there was a life-size cutout of me in the lobby of BMI. <laughs> okay, and I said, "Ah, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you who you talk to." And the guy he looked at me and he looked at his paper. Oh, I'm, I'm forgetting the guy's name right now. Shoot. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Joe Smith, we'll call him. Oh no, poor Joe. Uh, Joe Franklin. Anyway. Um, I said, you spoke to Joe Franklin, right? He looks down at his notes and he goes, yeah, how'd you know? I said, well, at the last BMI dinner where they give the awards for the most hits in one year, and I just about tied with the Beatles for the most in one year, they gave him a birthday cake for his 85th birthday. And his job over there is uh, artist relations, whatever that is. It's a cushy little do-nothing job. I said, he doesn't even know who he is. I said, you know, they're probably open now. Why don't you call again and ask, let's say, ask for the money department and see what happens. <laughs> he says, okay, Jeff, we'll do that. He goes inside and he comes back and now it's Mr. Barry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very quickly. <laughs> yeah. That's but, funny. It was such, and I realized, man, they had all this circumstantial evidence, you know, and... Um, Oh, and I had grown a beard because I'm a lefty and it was my left hand that was in, in the cast, right? Um, and he said, how come you're growing a beard? Jeff? I said, well, because I can't shave it. Okay. And uh, it goes on and on. And they finally, they finally realize, okay, well, they're crossing off all their uh, circumstantial evidence. And they go inside to the captain. These guys were, I guess, sergeants. And I hear the, the captain say, oh, okay. Let the witness look at him and let him go. I, I yell inside. I go, oh, no, no one's looking at me. First of all, I had an afro at the time, and they got me out of bed. I'm in a raincoat. <laughs> they, I just threw a raincoat on. I said, no, you arrest me, okay? And then, then we'll have somebody. And they go, okay, okay, you can go. Now, um, and I had told him I'm a lefty, right? So um, as... Now it's kind of over, and in my raincoat pocket, I, I did smoke only in the studio by at that time. And I, so I took out a cigarette, a cool cigarette, and I put it in my mouth. And before I could reach back in for something to light it with, 
As I was doing the cigarette, he said, so you're a lefty, huh? I said, yeah. And he goes, let me see your matches. Now, in the, in, in the um, New York uh, Daily News on Sunday, there were Dick Tracy comics. And in, in the Dick Tracy strip in the upper right-hand corner was a police tip. And because I'm a lefty, I remembered the following fact. Uh, for Book of Matches, if you're a lefty, the matches come off the left side of the book. If you're a righty, they come off the right side. So I took out my lighter and I said, well, you know, with it's hard to strike a match with one hand. So I use a lighter and I take a puff and I put the lighter away and I said, but my matches do come off the left side of the book. <laughs> now, the, the uniform cop taking the notes, he went, so that's the scene and it goes to black. Anyway, that's how I feel like like this was the scene this is the scene that we needed all the sound effects for. The you know, the 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 lighter sound and I don't have a lighter in front of me. This match the all anyway. Okay, let's go we'll go back to music real quick. So you're obviously really busy and at this time when you owned a record label, a lot of the people who were um you know, Amet Erdogan was in the studio. Like these guys are, a lot of these people were in the studio actually making records. Um, a, you know, the people who ran labels were also creatives. And now it's, you know, there's the business side and then they hire producers. But a lot of the people who were, yeah. So um, this is off topic and I really want to get back to the songwriting. But one of the arguments I have for giving songwriters points is to say, well, producers didn't always get points. You know, they weren't always given points because a lot of them owned the record label or they were hired in a fee situation. This is to- again, totally off topic, but I'm just curious when did you see the transition from somebody who, you know, when you were just producing records to when you were being paid and given advanced points on on records? Well, I really started serious producing. I had produced one thing before, um, one record, before uh, we started Redbird. And um, so, I mean, I was an owner, so I certainly you know, wasn't making a deal with my, my own label. But uh, with Bert... Burt Burns, Neil Diamond, there was some percentage when I was recording The Monkees. There was a, a, a production royalty, uh, the Archies, again, uh, production royalties. But most of my producing was done on my own labels. After Redbird, it was Steed Records, and then I had another label with Warner Brothers for really young, a really young demographic. It was called Rock and Horse Records. And, uh, but... Uh, 67ish 66 started yeah it's so it's so fascinating cuz you you know you guys were creating the music industry as we know it in the way i view it at least and and i and I, i'm constantly bringing up to people that just because you know we can we're still we're still in an infantile stage of our business even if we're six, 60 years removed from these, some of these records, where you know, if this is theater, theater is, is based in a, in some literal 18th century 
precedent on how how theaters make money versus now we're talking about 60 who years. Who makes money? Uh, who? The, the way the theater industry works is is based in as far as art is concerned they're still basing some of their law in early 19th century late 18th century you know uh, vestiges are in some of those contracts versus you know our contracts we're still making it up as we go so that's why I was asking but I I want to go back, you know, to this unbelievable run with "Be My Baby," "Baby I Love You," "Do Do Run Run." Then he kissed me with the Ronettes. Huge, you know, the the Dixie Cups, the Chapel of Love. You know, obviously the Shangri Las, the leader of the pack. You know, that defines a genre, and. You know, it's one thing where you've heard your songs on the radio, and then it's another when you can't turn the radio on without hearing your own songs. You have a place, you know, a brand new building on 72nd Street, and you're, you know, you've, you've really made it. Did you think it was easy? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, I think you could stop after the, you put the question mark mark after the word think. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really, really wasn't thinking at all. It was all just doing, and it was easy. I mean, I I personally have never had writer's block, and and um, I'm basically I'm a lyricist. Um, it was funny when when Ellie passed, um, a woman writer for the New York Times wrote her obituary and said how amazing it was that she could capture the feelings of teenage girls. And I was going to you know, tell her that I wrote the lyrics, but I didn't. Um, and, uh, but it's lyrics first, and I, I don't write them, I sing them, so melody is second, and uh, chords a distant third. That's why I love to write with the Juilliard graduate types who know all the chords. Mm. Um, I mean, I've had you know, chart records that I wrote myself, but they're, you know, three, four chord songs. Not that sophisticated. That's why it was such oh. fun writing with Peter Allen, for instance. I, I wrote I Honestly Love You, the Olivia Newton-John song with him. Yeah, huge record. I mean, that's a that's later, but in I guess another question that I think pertains more to my childhood than maybe everybody's listening to this, but what is it about Jewish kids that <laughs> that... That make good pop writers, and especially that era. You know, it's like the same thing that at, makes the comedians. <laughs> yeah, what is it? I, and what is it in New York? The you know, 
All the Jews. What is it about? What, <laughs> what, what was it? What happened? I what? Why? Know. Why did they make? I guess we had to have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, and all those songs have a little bit of a sense of humor. Well, yeah, oh, yeah it, absolutely, absolutely. I think a lot of people think music has to be serious. And that's well, not, yeah, that's not my lane. I, I, I never did serious. Well, I mean, the Olivia Newton-John songs kind of. That that's yes. That, well, I was I was older. <laughs> That Fair was enough. the early seventies. <laughs> when you did River Deep Mountain High for Tina Turner or Tina and Ike, you know you've got um, that's that's a, a a huge departure from the songs that you'd done before. At least, well, of all the songs maybe that I, yeah. I or Ellie and I wrote with Phil, that was the only one we wrote for a specific artist. All mm-hmm. the others we wrote, and whoever was up next got the next song. That's really what it was. But with Tina, we, we could expand the range. And uh, I wanted to write something a little more interesting, a little more dramatic. And um, that's what we came up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, great record. Tell me about the time, you know, you you and Ellie find Neil Diamond. At least that's the lore. You're in New York. You see a lot of talented people. You've seen a lot of talented people in your life. He's obviously about as big as you get in the music, in you know pop music history. What was it that he had that the other writers didn't? That the other artists didn't? Um, for me, it was the songs. Him singing his songs. I mean, his. If he was just a singer, I would have never signed him. Mm-hmm. But him singing his songs had had that. Him playing the guitar, singing the songs. I mean, I, I've always believed that great songs would sound great with one instrument, sung properly, that's all you need. It's not that you need more than that for a record. But how many records start out with vocal and one instrument? Right? So mm-hmm. there it was. And all the records that I made with him, or we made with him, but um, he said, kind of keep him and his guitar out there and everything else built around that. And that's what the basis of it all really is. I mean, he's not a, he's not a great singer, if you know what I mean. He, he sings his songs. He sings his songs, which makes him a great singer in how we... Yes. How record makers think of a great singer. It's like his interpretation of songs it was, is priceless. Yes, exactly. And yeah. the songs are great. Great songs. Yeah. Great songs. Yeah. You know, one of his... Biggest songs that he wrote that he didn't perform uh, is I'm a Believer. Mm-hmm. The Monkees, it's hard to explain how big TV is in the 60s to people now. But when you have four channels to choose from, that means that at any given time, a, the least amount of viewership is a quarter of the country. You know, it is like everybody's watching, and the monkeys are so big; they become so big, and it's really "I'm a Believer" is really the defining song for them, at least from my perspective. Oh, it, was, was, it was it was record of the year. I, I I remember the reruns, but I wasn't there when it happened. Um, that was one of the that's one of the first songs. You know, that might be the biggest song that you produced that you didn't write in in that. Um, from that perspective, do you feel the same ownership 
do you did you in this era you would have been considered a writer? You know, now now producers get writing credit, <laughs> um, and writers don't necessarily get producing credit. Having experienced that, why should a producer be a producer and not a songwriter? What do you mean? Why should you mean now? I, in general, I've, I'm still in a mindset where I wish it were as siloed as that was, where you'd have somebody who could interpret a song. Film be a writer of the script. Totally. I mean, the yeah. song, I, when I work with, when I, as a producer, um, artists that need to be told, I, I say things like, look, don't sing the notes. Sing the words, not the notes. Trust me, your brain mm-hmm. and your throat have a deal. They know the melody. Don't sing for other singers. Think of somebody, sing the song to them, sing the words. That's where the message is, that's where the emotion is, and that's going to move your audience. And that's where all all art, to me, is about one thing, creating emotion. And people pay to have their emotions tweaked. I mean, the poor painters, they got to paint a bowl of fruit in a way that not only do they want to make someone buy the painting, but hang it on the wall in their home. What a, what a life that's got to be. But um, so as, as a producer, um, that's, that's your job. Like a director has a script, a producer has a song, a lyric and a song, a melody. And I always, I've always said, I don't know why we call it record producing. It should be called record directing. Mm. Right? You have your... That would have been in, in my so day, much more clear. Well, in my day, I, I didn't have a... Um, a, a, a videographer or a, a, a director of photography. I had an engineer, and I had a lead singer. That was my lead actor. I had my background people, my musicians and background singers, my extras, right? And and I had I had one page as opposed to ninety pages or a hundred pages of a script, and I had three hours in a session, you know, to get it done. And I had a budget that I was responsible for. I had to, I had to make sure all the musicians and singers were um, paid properly through their unions. I had the paperwork to do. And, and that's all that a director is in charge of. The producer of a yeah. film puts people together and raises the money. So I was really directing. I mean, when I was in the studio, I would most of the time be out there with the band and the singers because I can wear earphones and talk to them. I had a microphone and I would talk to them during the take. And it, it, once I knew that the engineers got, you know, a drum's a drum and we'd, we'd work the sounds and get everything happening in the, in the booth. But the hits made out there to me, on the other side of the glass, it's not made in, in the booth. This era is really interesting because previous to 1964, you have... All the you know you have that you know the Ronettes and that the that that string of hits, but once the Beatles come in, it's slightly different. Obviously, the Monkees are you know uh, an adjunct Beatles kind of you know sides, almost like a you know it's the TV show version of it. Uh, oh yeah, that's a what legit it was designed a for. legit band, but it's a TV show version of it. You know, it, when you get into, and we still have a little bit more of the 60s, but as you get into the 70s, a lot of your generation start to release more of their own music. 
you know, Burt Bacharach's doing some of his music, and 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 obviously Carol King in in a few more years down the line starts to do her own music. Her, you know, being the artist of it. Um, in in the sixties, though, as you're seeing this transition where people are looking for the Beatles, you smartly you end up getting involved in the monkeys but you you do dive into some more of these artists i imagine that the relationship with neil diamond becomes more uh tangible because i think a lot of uh, from the conversations i've had with some of your peers has been that a lot of them really struggled what to write once these artists started coming in, but you don't seem to struggle in this. Why? I never listened to the radio. Very early on, I did because I wanted to hear "Tell Laura I Love Her" on the radio, and and then when I started producing, I did want to hear to see if my judgment, as far as the mix goes, worked sonically on the radio. But I never listened to the radio per se to see what's going on. Quite the opposite. I really didn't want to know. I didn't. I don't want to be. I don't like to be know what anybody else is doing. I don't want to be influenced. I don't care. I want to do what I what I want to do. And if mm-hmm. you know, because if you're doing what's out, then you're six months behind. Easy. You know. So the the great stuff you hear, you can't help it. But right. I, so I, I never listened to the radio. I mean, I literally didn't have a radio in the 60s. I mean, in the car I might listen, but otherwise, never, never. Didn't care. You, you close out the 60s with Sugar Sugar, a massive hit, still a massive hit. <laughs> that was like record it, of the yeah. year by, I like to My, say, record of the year by a group that didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, how is that possible? <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm not sure. Again, it's the power of TV, but it was, I, I got a call said, we're bringing, from Don Kirshner, right, who called me, of course, to do the monkeys as well, but they're bringing the Archie comic books. Archie and Veronica and Betty and Jughead and, um, to Saturday morning TV for preschoolers who, at the time, I had a three and a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. And 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 they want they said would you want to do the music, I, and but in in that in those days I, I and it was true for for animation they didn't want to spend money on the music and they would take happy birthday you know PD melodies and put new lyrics to it and and I said I'm not interested if that's they said no duh that's what we're calling you we, let's make them sound like radio hits so I don't know. Um, what happened? <laughs> I still don't know what happens. You know, you put out, uh, you put a record out, and it was, uh, ah, well, um, actually, oh, wait a minute. Here, the story goes that the radio was, like, not very interested. And, they, and the promotion, the, the record promotion guy for RCA took it to a station in Washington or Oregon, one of those northeast places, and he somehow got the label off the, off the 45, which is impossible, but he peeled it off and he brought it in and he, pl- and he said, listen to this, 
guy said, well, that sounds like a hit. Who is it? So I'm not going to tell you. He said, what do you mean? He said, put it on a decent rotation, which means you play it every so often, and then I'll tell you. So they played it. Um, they didn't say who it was. They just played it. And they got fabulous reaction. And he said, well, it's the Archies. And uh, it broke out of there. And uh, that's, how, that's how it started. I just remember that story. That's how it started. That's amazing. Um, and we had a, a couple of other top ten records f- to follow up, w- but in, in the in, in the wake of Sugar Sugar, which again was RIAA Record of the Year, it sold more records than any other record that whole year. Second place was This is the Dawning of the Day Age yeah. of That was second place. <laughs> Sugar Sugar. I mean, how crazy! This is it's nineteen sixty nine. It's the year of Woodstock. It's the you know, it's the year after the. It's in the middle of the Vietnam War. You know, there's a a thought process that when when politics are dark, that's when pop music sells its best, and when uh, when you know when money's good and it's easy, that's when you get this dark emotional music. It's almost like you need the opposite to entertain you. And so it's you know to have Sugar Sugar be the number one song in 1969, the year after, you know the cra- one of the craziest years probably in United States history. Of course, Sugar Sugar is going to be the biggest song. Like, you know, of course it's going to be. We just you just don't you can't plan it. But of course that's going to be the case. Well, you see, I was very conscious of. All, most of the th- I was writing for young female minds. That's uh, that's who I was creating entertainment for. That's who was buying records. So I was writing for eleven to sixteen year old girls, right? Yeah. Who are uh, certainly for sugar for the Archies. I'm writing for preschoolers who obviously can't go to the record store and buy a record. So I was always aware f- throughout the sixties that the parents had to like the music. Because they were going to pay for it, and um, that's so. I think that's part of the appeal and why it's still <clears throat> relevant in some ways, <clears throat> or still gets played and used in endless commercials and things. Is because it was yeah. really the the sonics of it and, and 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 the cuteness of it was aimed at preschoolers, but. The, or here's an example. Somebody once said to me, Jeff, you're a smart guy and you're writing all these bubblegum, which, of course, you know how the phrase bubblegum came about? From a record called uh, Yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy. Some yeah. reviewer called it bubblegum. So anything that was cute became bubblegum. But anyway, um, they said, you know, you're a smart guy. Why don't you write? And I said, you know, you're right. I was reading something by um, Rod McEwen the other day, and it said something about the loveliness of loving you. And they said, that's, yeah, that, why don't you write that? I said, screw you, that's from Sugar Sugar. Hey. That line is you know, in Sugar Sugar. It was, so I was kind of writing to the parents at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I've tried to explain to people that, that a good pop song is a commercial for whatever the concept is. And the chorus is... The chorus is really the the brand name, and the pre-chorus is sort of like it's nine ninety nine for a limited amount of time, and the verses are like it cleans under couches, it cleans under you know it's like, and and so when you really are thinking of it in that way, 
you are strategically aiming for your audience in a really smart. It's just a strategic way. I mean, which is but. But what's interesting is that a year later you end up with Montego Bay becomes obviously another big hit, but that song's you know the opposite. And then you know you have like like that's that's that to me that couldn't be less bubblegummy, you know. But it wasn't for a TV show either, right? I mean, people say that it was the first pop reggae record, and I wasn't really trying to make reggae records. I wasn't you know listening to reggae certainly, but. You want to hear a quick story about Montego Bay? Sure, yeah, go for it. Uh, Bobby Bloom, the artist, and I wrote it, and uh, you know, he would be in my office, and he was playing the guitar, sitting up, and see me. I'd be by my desk, and my desk was my was my rhythm thing, and at the top of the desk was the snare, and the side, the metallic side of the desk, it sounded like a kick. So he would play, and I'd be banging on something, and I loved it. <clears throat> so I got the best musicians in New York, as I do, and I went in the studio. I friggin' hated it. It had no charm. It was terrible. I junked the record. And I got a, a, a kid band, a band of young kids. And went and they were looking around in the studio. And it, it was kind of had more charm, better. I junked it. I said, Bobby, something's wrong. Because when you're playing and I'm tapping, I, I love it. Went back in the studio. We hung a mic. And we stood opposite each other and just clapped. The two of us, we, we had the same rhythm loop. And we, we clapped and sang the whole song all the way through. And then he and I overdubbed every single thing on that record, one at a time. And the last thing we did was peel off that hand clap vocal and he put his vocal on. And that had the... The make it was hand. It, it sounds like a handmade record, which it was. That's crazy. If between that song and I honestly love you, the Olivia Newton John. As I always say, like I'm always interested in what happens between the hits. And between 1960 and 1970, you have kind of an endless. Like there's not a year that goes by that you don't have a hit. Or at least that's what it appears like, and, and you're and you're running a record label where you have a leader of the pack, and all these songs coming off of your own label. But there's a a break in the discography there. What happened in your life between 1970 and I honestly love you in 1974? What was your focus? Were you just focusing more than at that point on producing, or were you uh, what was happening? <laughs> very, very good, Ross. Uh, okay, I'll tell you the truth. Came out to, uh, I moved, I came out to L.A. the first time in the mid-60s. And I got, came out at LAX, and there was a palm tree at yeah. the airport. Yeah. And I looked up, and I said, this is good. I like this. And L.A. was a small town. There was a parking spot wherever you were going. It was sun was shining, and um, so in in seventy ish, I think nineteen seventy, made a deal with A and M Records. They gave me offices, all my overhead, and I would produce, I think, three artists for them, whatever I wanted to do, and I was free to do whatever else I wanted to do. And A and M Records was the place to be. 
It was wonderful. They had offices on La Brea, the old Charlie Chaplin Studios. And so the answer to your question is um, cars and L.A. LA just blew me away. And I really lost concentration. I was not focusing. I was having too much fun. I mean, I, I literally had a home in Bel Air, and, and when the first Honda Accord came out, a friend of mine owned the agency for Honda, the advertising agency, and he said, hey, if you, if you want one of them, I'll get you one real quick. And I said, oh, yeah, they, they look real cool. So I ended up, and one day I'm pulling up to my home in Bel Air, and I mean, I'm not blowing smoke here. I mean, the, I'm waiting for the gates to open, and there's my two Rolls-Royce sedans, and the garage door opens, and there's my um, Bentley Continental, they only made 19 of, and my um, uh, Rolls-Royce convertible, and here I am in my Honda Accord. It was about cars and blondes and craziness and the rainbow and L.A. And my best friend was Paul Williams. We met at A&M, and we were just having the best time. And um, I, I really wasn't focusing. I was totally distracted. First person to ever realized that there was that three-year, <laughs> two, three-year lapse of... It was crazy. It was crazy times. Paul, Paul notoriously, uh, you know, it was fun to watch him at the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Amazing advocate, good person, very loudly sober and um, really is is helps many songwriters and artists become sober. Um, and his his partying was pretty notorious uh, during those years. I imagine if he's your best friend during those years and during the seventies that it was exactly how you described it when. A song like I Honestly Love You becomes a hit and it's Olivia Newton-John's real come-out party and she becomes one of the biggest stars of the 70s. Does that help you focus or does that enable more of the issues of L.A. in the 70s? Um, it was just one of the things that happened. I mean, I had had so many hits as a writer and a producer. It, it was great because that song pointed out to me the importance of the chords. Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I wrote it with Peter Allen because I was going to produce Peter for, our, for a and Records as an artist. And I had started on the song. And I listened to all of his songs, very interesting. Tent, the, the Tenterfield Saddler was the name of one of them. Obviously, just by the title, you could tell it's not a radio kind of, for then, kind of song. And and all the songs are interesting, but I didn't hear anything that sounded radio. And that, that's what it was about. And I had started on the song, and he, I'll never forget, he was at the piano, and I said, Peter, I, I, I started on this song, and I sang him, maybe I hang around here a little more than I should. We both know I got somewhere else to go. Right? And, uh, and he was at the piano, and to me it was almost like a three-chord country song. It could be, uh, maybe I'll hang around here a little more than us, mm. you know, CGF and A minor. 
But he started to play. And I've always said Peter had 11 fingers. He had these chords. And to this day, I can go to a party, and if there's a band, they could play any song I ever wrote except that one. Nobody knows the chords. Anyway, so he started to play. He said, oh, I like that. And I was like, holy shit, that, wow. And we finished it, and we made a demo. Because I knew to record him with those chords, I'm going to need an arranger. We're gonna, it's going to have strings. So he sat at the piano, did a vocal at the same time, and that, and we made a, a disc, him. And somebody in the publishing department was going to see Olivia with material for her new album. And they came back the next day and said, hey, Olivia loves your song. Said, what are you talking about? What song? And he said, well, you know, I honestly love it. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to record that with Peter. But then I sat with Peter and I said, look, she's the biggest artist, certainly the biggest female artist out there. I'll leave it totally up to you. If, if she records it and it's a hit, you're, you're established as a writer, which is so cool. And if, it, if she records it and if it never comes out, you can still record it. And, and, if, it, and if she records it, comes out, if it's not a hit, you know, that's not going to happen. If it, anyway, um, obviously it was um, Song of the Year. Um, and, uh, and Grammy, Record of the Year and all that. Grammy performance too, I think. Um, but um, what I believe happened was she, they couldn't, Warner Records couldn't tell her no. Because she was having all these mid-up-tempo, you know, bouncy little hits. They were great songs, great hits. And here's this ballad, which is, you know, every promotion man's <laughs> nemesis. But they couldn't say no to her. And I think they said to John Farrar, uh, just, you know, make it like the demo. You know, piano, football, the strings and voices in the background, and uh, done. And they made the perfect record. You know, there are no drums and no bass on that record. <laughs> I never really paid attention to that. I yeah, didn't course. either. Right. It was years later I realized that it. it's her <laughs> singing a song she loved. She closed her show with it. Yeah. And and uh, it, it, that, after that, that's you know, that's 1974, and it's hard to explain um, to people who haven't reached their potential yet who aspire to be hit songwriters money can be a, an interesting demotivator and so can success it's hard to keep your head down but one of the things that's also kind of complicated you end up with the theme song of two of the biggest shows of my lifetime certainly of my childhood with the Jeffersons moving into Family Ties and a bunch of these other songs well and uh, one of my favorites is One Day at a Time I just didn't watch that I'm just saying personally <laughs> but yes so you know when you have songs that are creating that kind of revenue on a literal daily basis when you'd have reruns weekly basis on new shows did you find that you know when when it's it's really like the quintessential mailbox money. You know, you write these few songs, and unlike the hits that you had before, where they have a an arc, a radio arc, mm-hmm. these don't have an arc. They just stay there. Once once a, if it's a hit show, they just stay there. Yeah, they're it on, just plateaus. They're, they're on for it's just years on. and years. 
And it's through through it's 1975 through I think it was like mid 80s is is Jeffersons and and Family Ties is my you know 1982 through the rest of the 80s and and then you have reruns through the 90s for both those shows they're still on I mean is that a it's something that we all aspire we all want to have those those kinds of theme songs now it's a little bit different because everything ends up on streaming and they don't have the same kind of royalty structure and all that stuff. But how you know we we spoke last week. How much of your focus became television versus radio, or is it just this is just what it ended up being? I mean, just, were you focusing it. on it? It was just part of it. No, no, I got calls. You know, it was wonderful yeah. working with Norman Lear. He is oh, yeah. probably my last hero. Yeah, he just turned a hundred. Did you see that? He just turned I 100 see that. I years mean, obviously, old. Norman Lear, for those who don't know, he's he probably he, the greatest television producer of all time. I mean, that guy did, uh, as you said, one day at a time in Jeffersons and you know, All in the Family and Maude and Sanford and that guy's, you know, he's he's one of the few that actually uh, really brought uh, race into pop culture like nobody else, and just what a legend. Um, I want to I want to do a musical. I want to do the Jeffersons. I want to do Moving On Up the Jeffersons musical now. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, I spoke to I, mean, I spoke to Norman about it. He says, "Oh god, I don't that's a 3-year process. I don't have it." But yeah. maybe I'll talk to Sony. They own the rights really to it. Uh were you during all this how did you own your publishing? I know you had your record company. I know you did a publishing deal early on. Were you in a publishing company through most of your career, or you know, how did you? How was your business run at the at you know as your career went through it? <laughs> Poorly. I was. I, I like to say, pat me on the head, and I'll see how rich I can make it. You know, I was <laughs> did not have really good advice and so on and so forth. Uh, for instance, here's, here's a horrible example: the contract between. Um, when I signed Neil Diamond to Bang Records, my attorney mm-hmm. left one word out of the contract. The word what was, was exclusive. So when Neil decided uh-huh. he wanted to go to a big label and, for whatever reasons, he brought the contract to a major law firm and they found that the word exclusive, he was not exclusive to Bang Records. Mm-hmm. He had to fulfill his contract with them, but he could also record anywhere else. Left out yeah. one word. So anyway, my, my, it was, you know, sometimes I, I say to you, I wish I was smart as well as, uh, you know, having all the success, but I, it would be, I would have a different brain, so I'm not going to complain about it, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm particularly business-minded for a songwriter, and I got to say, like, I always wish that I had less of that and I could just go and be in a studio, write my best, enjoy the being fully immersed in the music. Duff, we got to get you having some fun there, Ross. Oh uh, yeah, totally. Um, I, I'm I'm with you. I, one one other comment before we go to the uh, next segment. Um, when when you have the Olivia Newton John song and and you were saying to Paul your your co-writer and your uh you're saying that you know you can record this song if it's not a hit that's one thing that our gen 
or sorry, P- sorry, Peter. I was Paul Williams, Peter. Uh, if um, one of the things that this generation misses out on is the idea of covers. Right now, if there's any evidence that a song has been released in any capacity, even on TikTok, it can destroy this, the copyright because no one will cut it again. Really? Yeah. I mean, once a song, especially if it comes out intentionally, it's just done. You know, it's just done because people want to be the first to record. And I don't think anyone cares about that. They just want to hit songs. Like Luther Vandross never recorded, in a, you know, it was always covers. Like the, all of his biggest hits were covers. Well, covers I, I are worth You could make a hit on TikTok. You put out your record on TikTok and you had a hit, yeah. no? Yeah. I mean, it's just what it is. I, I guess, like, What's the advice, having seen the industry go from 1960, you know, your first song really writing it in 1958, that's before the Isley Brothers even have their first hit. And you see all this, uh, all the changes in the business in the 60s. You saw like contracts m- missing words like exclusive to what it is now. What's the advice you give this generation? Having gone through all you know, all the feelings that you've had. Well, um, you should have a you should have a team. You need you need a legal advice. You should have a, a music business attorney. And uh, the the first thing that comes to me is save everything. <laughs> well, I don't know how much there is to save anymore, actually. But um, but I remember I got a call. Someone was doing a coffee table book, and they wanted to know if I had my lyrics from the yellow pads, yellow legal pads. You write mm-hmm. the lyrics down. And I, I didn't keep anything. I, and I said, see, no, I'm so, And I realized I should have kept everything, but who knows that the future was coming and these things would be of value, you know? And I never took pictures. Now, you know, like Phil Spector, Don Kirshner, a lot of people, they have photographers come to the studio. I said, Please, I mean, I'm working, you know. I don't want lights on, I don't want to be posing. It's a distraction. I never cared about that. But in a way, it's important. Man, when you said save everything, I thought you were going to, you know, here's somebody who had multiple Rolls Royces and a Bentley. Oh, uh, well, um, y'all, that, that, absolutely. I, I wish I had the cars, for sure. I thought you were going to say save everything, not even the cars. I thought you were just going to say cash, especially like, you know, it's like that's a that's always the adv- advice that I feel like people give. But I think that that's really interesting that there's value to the the tools that we use. And, and especially in an era where people the are constantly maybe. writing, everyone's writing on their phones. And I was in a session, uh, I was in a session with a pretty big artist. We had a pretty big hit. And and he wrote down the bridge on a yellow notepad, and I have that one th- that one thing framed. Save it. I, I saved it, uh, so I was pretty stoked. Okay, so next segment, we're going to go five for five. Uh, I'm going to list, list five things. Just tell me what comes off the top of your head. Uh, first thing I want to know is uh, how, I guess I was going to say Ico Ico. Was what I wrote it. So, because how does somebody write Ico Ico? Ico Ico. The basis of it is an old um, uh, New Orleans uh, um, parade song. Got it. And I was in the studio with 
um, the Dixie Cups, who are from New Orleans. And they were singing that song, and the original record, I picked up a plastic ashtray and a screwdriver, and I'm playing, I'm playing the rhythm, and they were singing it, and then I put on some little bass box that I brought back from Jamaica from my honeymoon with, with Ellie and I went to Jamaica on our honeymoon, and that's the basis of the record, is it's boom, boom, boom in the bottom, and the ashtray, and them singing this charming little song. Uh, it's so good. Okay, uh, next one is The Monkees. Yeah. Well, the secret is, Don Kirshner called me and says, look, we have to have a private meeting. And he, and he said, look, we have the hottest show on television, and last train to Clarksville hasn't sold a million records. Disaster. He says, would you want to take over the producing and do the music for the monkeys? I said, sure. And I, I had this song, of course, from Neil Diamond. I thought that would be perfect for them. And uh, cut it with them. And uh, there we go. All right, let's go with Neil Diamond next. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an involved question because it, it all ended up quite ugly when he left Bang Records and Burt Burns died. And then they said it was because he was so aggravated. I, it's not, I don't believe that's why. But uh, the details of that, we're going to have to wait to read the book. Got it. I will read that. Your mother. Oh, my mother. Very, very busy, very busy lady, keeping, keeping us fed. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful to be able to retire her and, and buy her a house in, in the mid-60s on, on Long Island and her and my sister. And to uh, you know, take care of her for the rest of her life. She she lived to be ninety five. My sister's still going strong, and uh, it was very gratifying to be able to give her anything she needed and wanted. What about Ellie? Ellie, it was <laughs> it's almost an arranged marriage in a way. We we had no we had supposedly met when I was four and she was three at the wedding of our mutual cousins and uh, that's the first thought that comes to mind well thank you for doing the podcast i know you know there's lots of interviews with you and and uh i'm obviously familiar with your work and but i i always talk about the importance of aging gracefully in the music business and probably in every business but you have such a love and passion for creating music, television, all of it still. And it comes from, it still sounds like the way you described creating the first song when you were eight. You still have this energy about you that's as if you're still creating that first song. You just are not jaded by the business the way so many people get, you don't look at it like that. You're looking at it as like, how can I create How can music I find another energy? way to say the same old thing? Find a new yeah. angle. As a lyricist, that's the challenge, to find a new way to say the same old thing. I love you. I don't love you. Come here. Go away. To find a new approach 
to uh, musically, but lyric, story, storyteller. And, and uh, that, that was what's such fun about creating uh, theme songs. You have 41 seconds to set up the viewer for what's going to come visually after that. And, and it's, still, it's still the thrill to come up with the twist, a new way of saying the same old thing. I love it. Love it. Well, there you go. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.